Listen to these words from Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Ends the reading of God's word. God has commanded a blessing. Life forevermore. And because of that blessing, the expectation of the psalm is that unity is a good and important thing. But a lot of us don't feel unity this week. The election has come and gone. Praise God, there are no more political commercials. Maybe we can start to move on and I can return to Facebook to see pictures of people's kids and funny videos once again. I don't think there's ever been a more divisive or worry-filled election. Some people are ecstatic this week that their candidate won and relieved that the the other lost. Others are devastated that their candidate lost and terrified that the other won. There have been parties and celebrations and there have been protest walks this week. Some people are excited that the country could be great again. Others are terrified at what might happen next. And oddly, there are genuine Christians in both camps. I preached an entire sermon series in September on faith and politics, and I made one point more than any other. In fact, I I made an intentional effort to make the point every Sunday. I tried to say over and over again that the source of our hope as Christians is not in the political kingdom, but in the kingdom of God. And I think too many people, especially Christians, have sold out their hope for something way less than the hope that is given to us. Even I didn't know, in proclaiming these words, how strong they actually were in our country today. We have our hope really wrapped up in our politics. And now we must think as a church and as a nation, what comes next? I do not envy Donald Trump and those he will surround himself with because he's got a very tough task ahead of him. This is a very splintered and divided nation The emotions and harsh words from both sides of the campaign trail must not be the future that we move into. It's a mistake, however, I think, to think that this election is the only thing responsible for the emotions and the divisions that we see. That this unity has been building. The polarization we can see in all kinds of other areas of life. We recognize that, especially in the church, where the church has seen division. Churches have left denominations and churches have fallen apart because of the division among them. There's just an animosity and an anxiety and a division that is happening. And it's not just political, but man, it showed up in a big way there. Now we have so much anxiety, so much backlash, so many harsh words in our in our own lives, on our personal lives and our work with our neighbors. So today, I, I don't 
I'm not going to try to help you process the election. That's not the function of this. And I did a sermon series on politics and faith, and I'm not trying to recap those things there. But what I want to talk about is the anxiety and disunity that I see everywhere, because I think the Bible has some things to say about that, particularly for us as Christians. I don't think there's any other area in our world right now where Christians have the ability to be salt and light the way they can in modeling unity and listening to one another in this time. To do that, I want to talk to you about a letter that Paul wrote, two letters actually, to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a city uh, in, uh, near where we would call what will be Greece today. And uh, it was a city that Paul spent some time at trying to get a church going. Uh, this is what Paul did. He was a missionary. He would travel. He'd go to a place for a year or two, try to help get a church community started. And then he would move on to the next place. But he would then continue to ministry to those places, either by stopping by. We know he did that a few times. But also by writing letters. And much of your New Testament is work that Paul did writing letters to churches that he was in connection with or that he helped start. And Corinth is one he helped start. Now, after Paul was there, a lot of times other leaders would step up into the leadership positions because Paul was a traveling missionary. He wouldn't stay anywhere too long. Okay, he was an apostle. He was not a pastor. So he would hand over the reins of the community to other people or other people would step up. In the case of Corinth, a man named Apollos came to be in that area. And Apollos, we know from some of the descriptions of him, what, he was a very dynamic guy. Okay? A lot of charisma, a lot of energy. And uh, so Apollos could help get people kind of excited. And uh, so there's a lot of division going on in Corinth after some time. Right? First of all, part of the division is over different leadership. Okay, some people are saying, I follow Paul. Other people are saying, I follow Apollos. Other people are bragging that they don't follow either of the leaders. They follow Jesus. But still, you have these divisions about who you follow. I follow this person. I follow this person. It's nothing like we have today. Some of the division is over worship, right? Okay, so we know from Paul's letters that there's obviously some crazy stuff happening in worship. People are getting up and saying things when they shouldn't. People are getting up and and causing disunity. There, uh, there's some discussion in 1 Corinthians about uh, communion and how to have communion because apparently some people are getting so excited when they get to the church, which is at that time more like a meal and celebration than a service like we're doing today. But they get there, they get so excited, they end up going through all the bread and the wine, and then there are these people that feel less important or that come late or that are, that are sort of down the table a little bit, not as important in the community. And they can't participate in communion because we're out of the elements. And, and so communion becomes this symbol for them of, Paul saying, it should be this symbol of unity, but it's right now for you a symbol of division. Some of the division for, for Corinth is about dealing with sexual sin. There's a man who's living now with his mother-in-law after the, the passing of his wife. Um, and so the community is letting this happen. And in fact, the community is sort of bragging about, like, look how gracious and welcoming we are that we can support this person. And Paul is saying, no, you, you don't get any credit for supporting something that shouldn't be supported. So Paul sees this church, sees the struggles of this church that he helped start it. And he, and he sees them, and even in his language in most of his letters, Paul sees his churches as his children. 
I helped, I helped you be born. I helped start you. And I care about you. And just like a good parent, Paul doesn't want to just, just look at them and, and give them an affirmation. Paul also wants to correct and encourage them. And so Paul writes the first two letters to Corinth. And we know that it's a couple of different letters. And in fact, some people have even said that the, the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians are combinations of letters. And Paul is referring to, in the, those books to letters that they wrote. So we know there's a back and forth going on between Paul and Corinth, uh, only part of which we have in our scriptures today. So what's Paul's answer to this disunity and dis- division in Corinth? Well, I think we can sum it up in, in three words. Three important words, three words that my teacher, Len Sweet, calls the three hardest words to get right in the world today. I love you. I love you. First of all, the church of Corinth is confused over the I. They're confused over the I, their identity, how they see themselves as individuals. I think we live in a culture that is having some of the same problems. We live in a culture that is obsessed with our identity. But we're wrestling with how to find it. And we're trying to find it in the wrong places. So so my identity is now wrapped up in my political positions. My opinions about certain things. uh, Where I stand in society. And, And I don't have an identity that goes beyond that. Here's how Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 3. And I'm starting in verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in his age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or in the world of a light or life or death, or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Paul's understanding is that because of what God has done for you, you hold a very special place. You are God's temple. You are holy. Not because you were holy, right? A lot of you have been very unholy. But God gives you this status of holy in Christ, that Christ pays for what you've done. Now you're God's temple. God dwells within you. You are holy. You are that temple. Part of the problem that we have sometimes is that we see ourselves as too big. We have a self-supremacy. That what I think and what I want is more important than anything else in the world. It's all about us. It's very egotistical. How does Paul say it? We see ourselves as wise, smart. We know what we're talking about. We know how to handle things. We've got this. But Paul says, that's foolish. Sometimes, though, we have the other problem. We see ourselves as too small. We see ourselves as unimportant, that we are nothing, that we are inadequate. But you, Paul wants to balance both those things out. Everybody, listen, you're not everything. The universe does not revolve around you. 
Um, it does when you're a two-year-old, right? But you're supposed to mature and come out of it and eventually not be a two-year-old anymore. We have a lot of adults that are two-year-olds. Universe does not revolve around you. You know that because the universe revolves around God and you've met that God. That's who the universe revolves around. But also, you're not nothing. You are holy and you are good and you are made in the image of God. And when that image got broken in this world, Christ came and fixed that image so that you are holy and complete. And when God sees you, he sees you as perfect and holy. Oh, the flaws that you obsess with, that is not how God defines you. That does not need to be how you define you. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4. You must know, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful selves. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says to the Ephesians, you got a new self. I know your old self was messed up, but you got this new self you can put on. And it's not everything because you're Christ. Okay? Christ is everything to you. But it means you're not nothing either. It means you're truly righteous and holy, Paul says. You are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Those are powerful words. I don't know what you did in your past. I don't know what you did in your past. Uh, but whatever it is, God does not see that in you anymore. He sees holiness and righteousness. And you will never be able to pay him back for that. The only thing you can do is start to wear that. Start to put it on as yourself. We don't get the I part right. We're confused. We're either too low about ourselves or we're way too big about ourselves. And unless we start to get a better sense of who we truly are, we're going to have more disunity. That's the I. Love. Paul writes to the Corinthians an entire chapter about love. You've heard it many times in 1 Corinthians 13. We read it all the time at weddings because that's just kind of what you do. You read it at weddings. But if you go back and read it, Paul isn't talking about weddings at all. Paul isn't talking about marriage at all. Paul is trying to get this church at Corinth that's really confused about what true love really is. He's trying to get them to understand what love is. He says a different kind of love. We use that word love, but we use it all kinds of different ways. I can say that I love my wife and my kids. I can also say that I love pizza and I love going to Disney World. And and what kind of word is love if it means the same for my wife and for pizza? Right? We got to define this word love because our culture is really confused about what love is. True love for Paul is a different kind of love. And what does he say? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Is that the kind of love you see in our culture today? Does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I can tell you right now, knowing just a little bit about this verse, that if we have people that are not hopeful and don't think they can endure, then they've got a poor definition of love. The definition of love that Paul gives is love that is not self-seeking, not insisting on its own way, not arrogant, not resentful. This is the kind of love that the world seeks, but it's not what they're finding. And it's not what Christians are finding. A true love is love without consequences. Uh, A true love is not love without consequences or hard conversations. Love has accountability. I think I've told this before. My kids love to go to playgrounds. And I watch parents on playgrounds all the time um, that say, okay, Johnny, it's time to go. Johnny, it's time to go. Johnny, you need to get down off the slide. Johnny, this is your five-minute warning. We're going to go in five minutes. Johnny, Johnny, you can go down the slide one more time, and then we got to go. And ten minutes later, Johnny is still playing at the playground. Okay, that is not loving for that kid. That's not loving for that kid. Because that kid cannot live his whole life not understanding the consequences, not understanding that he can't listen, right? Love has truth in there. Love has consequences. Love has difficult conversations. And that makes love even harder. You can't just flat love everybody. You want to love everybody, but you also sometimes, if you really love them, you got to speak truth to them. And sometimes you got to draw lines with them. Sometimes you got to say no to them. But the kind of love Paul's talking about allows you to do that. Because you know why? Because I'm not doing that for my own good. Right? It's not self-seeking. I'm doing it because I truly and genuinely love that other person. And man, is that hard to get to. Man, is that hard to get to. But that's the kind of love we desperately need in our world. And it should be starting with us. I love you. We need to really change how we look at other people. How we think about the people around us. That we are not all autonomous individuals that have nothing to do with anybody else. That we are not all able to be so easily pigeonholed in categories or in opinions or in, in political parties. Or We are individual, unique, beautiful creations of God. That, that there's no two people that are the same. And we know that because we all know twins and we know twins to be a lot alike, but also not always exactly alike. People are different. Here's how Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians 12. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the great honor And our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty, which our more representable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that all members have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Here's the metaphor. It's a really fun metaphor, right? You all are different body parts. 
We're a body. And you need each other. We can't just have all hands. A body that was all hands, that would be something out of science fiction. It would not work. You need the parts. You need all the different parts. You need eyes. You need ears. You need people to be themselves. To be different from one another. Differences are not something to be feared. There's something to be celebrated and, and, and to, be, uh, to, to lean into. Because we need differences. We cannot all be the same. You need the people around you. And they need you. And it's amazing that we're getting so individualistic. Like all my, all my needs are only important. When actually on a global scale, we're understanding that not to be true at all. Right? Businesses can't just market to this country or that country. Businesses have this larger sense of being for a lot of different kinds of people. We, we are, at the same time, we're getting more and more connected around the world. We're getting more and more individualistic around the world. And that is a problem. I feel like in America right now, we have too many mouths and not enough ears. We have very few hands that actually serve and a lot of people that like to tell other people how they should serve. We're a body. We're a body and we need to learn how to respect one another's differences and come together for a larger purpose. And everybody, as the church, we should understand this most of all. Because we have a larger purpose. We have a larger sense of togetherness because we are bound by what Christ has done for us. We should have the leg up on understanding those words, I love you. But it seems like it's not always the case. Paul writes another letter, 2 Corinthians, in which he's trying to help this church who is still not figuring this stuff out. And he writes in chapter 5, some of my favorite verses, I, I mean, I come back, this is a passage I come back to a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. You understand that God has this major purpose. He sent Jesus for this purpose, to reconcile the world to himself. So there was this gap. There was this disunity that wasn't supposed to be there in the Bible between God and his creation. And there, this gap grew because of sin. And it just continued to grow. And Christ came to bring reconciliation, to bring the parties together. And in fact, Jesus being fully God and fully human does that in himself. He's both. He's the perfect unity. And then when he dies, he pays for the sin that creates this gap and brings reconciliation. He brings the parties together. He brings the people together that were separate. And what does Paul say? He made us ministers. Some, some texts say agents of reconciliation. That we have this job to do to start seeing reconciliation. Start bringing things especially back to God, but also to bring reconciliation between people. When I look at the, the mission of the church... When I look at who we should be as God's people and God's body, I cannot help but think 
that the world really needs us right now. The world really needs our example. The world really, give, really needs our words and our actions. They really need it. But there's two problems. The world does not want us right now. The world does not want the church. They don't want the words of Christians. They really do not. And the other problem that I think we need to work on is I'm not sure the church is ready to be needed. I'm not sure that we are embodying in the church in America today the kind of I love you that Paul is talking about. And I think we need to do our work because our world desperately needs us. Not that the world needs us, but but the world desperately needs Jesus. And Jesus left us here for the purpose of bringing the world to him. So it's my prayer that uh, we would be God's people, that we would model some of these things. Be careful how you speak about what happened this week and in this election. Um, Because you don't just represent yourself, you represent Christ. And I've seen a lot of people on both sides of this election that aren't representing Christ all that well. Be careful how you speak. Make sure you are praying for your leaders. Paul is very clear about that for us as a church. And try in your life to follow Jesus more and more deeply. Draw close to him. Let him draw close to you. And start to live out these words. Let us pray. Father God, there are so many people worried and so many people upset and so many people excited after this week's election. Lord, calm our anxiety across the board. Help us as Christians to truly find our hope in you. Lord, we do pray for President-elect Trump. Not everyone wanted him to be president, uh, but he's going to be. And so we obediently follow your will in praying for our officials. Work through him, despite his flaws, that your will would be done, that goodness would come to the city and the nation that we live in. Help him to surround himself with the right people to make good decisions to bring peace and hope. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.